Good morning. Welcome to the Swedish House of Finance. It feels so good to be in a real seminar room with real people and real speakers again. It's, it's really nice. Uh, my name is Perry Sien. I work here at the Swedish House of Finance and I will moderate this seminar. Uh, and the title for the seminar is The Future of Money. I think this title somehow speaks for itself, so I, I won't comment on that. You will hear it from the speakers. And we are extremely lucky to have two of the, I would claim, world's leading authorities on this subject, uh, namely Professor Gary Gorton. He's a professor of finance at the Yale School of Management. He's done research in many fields of economics and, and finance and written on financial crisis, banking, and recently a lot on, there they are, uh, on stable coins and, and economic stability. Stefan Ingves probably doesn't need an introduction uh, here, but I just want to say he's, he is a PhD from the Stockholm School of Economics. From way back, there was no department on finance in those days, so we were only in the economics department. And I've seen Stefan on stage many times in the last couple of, of years, uh, talking about we need to understand what money is. We need to find those sort of old theories of money, and we need to look at history to understand what is going on. And that's exactly what we are going to do today. So I'm, I'm really very happy that you've managed to squeeze this into your busy, busy schedule. Um, and we will proceed like this. Uh, Gary Gorton starts with a 20-minute uh, introduction, then Stefan 20 minutes, and then it's your opportunity as a moderator. I have some questions, but I very much prefer you. Either to ask questions, it doesn't even have to be questions. You can voice your opinions, anything. But please take the opportunity, because it's a great opportunity to discuss these important topic topics. So with these words, please, Gary, the floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, good morning. Thank you for that very kind introduction. Uh, thanks for the organizers for including me uh, on this program. And thanks to the governor for being part of it. He and I, we do this a lot, uh, this kind of tag team. We, we're going to take the show on the road pretty soon. <laughs> uh, you know, normally, we wouldn't talk about the future of money because nobody cares because everybody thinks they know what money is and it's a boring subject. But with crypto space, all sorts of questions have come to the surface which haven't been thought about for 150 years. So the future of money actually started yesterday. So we're already behind. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about what money is. I'm going to propose a theory of how to think about money. And then I'll talk a little bit about stable coins uh, and at the end about central bank digital currency. So in, in market economies, um, there's a primitive demand for a means to transact. And when there's no alternatives, privately produced money arises. Uh, and this occurred in Sweden. This occurred in most countries. Uh, there's usually a shortage of metallic coins, and so uh, banks uh, issue paper money. 
Stable coins are the latest uh, privately produced money. Uh, but there's two problems with privately produced money. The first was identified by Ricardo, who said, in the use of money, everyone is a trader. Those whose habits and pursuits are little suited to explore the mechanism of trade are obliged to make use of money and are no way qualified to ascertain the solidity of different banks whose paper is in circulation. Accordingly, we find that men living on limited incomes, women, laborers, and mechanics of all descriptions, are often severe sufferers by the failure of country banks. So well, the, way, the, way we, the way I think about what Ricardo is saying is he's saying that if you have to use this private money uh, in exchange, you're at a disadvantage because you're trading with somebody who has more information than you have. Right? This occurs in many securities markets, but we don't want it to happen with money. We don't want you to uh, have to accept a lower than face value uh, for your private money. So Ricardo and others uh, identified the solution, and the solution is to have a uniform price. That is to have a price that doesn't change, okay? And that's very hard to achieve. Here's an example of a private banknote from uh, before the Civil War in the US when there are 1,500 banks each issuing notes like this of different denominations. And of course, there were counterfeits and all kinds of problems. This is from Bull's Head Bank in New York. It's a $1 bill. And this is a good, this is a good bill. Uh, you can tell because it's worn. Right? It's worn, which means it's passed through many hands. Many people have looked at it. The problem with these kind of bills is that the price has moved around. Right? So here's an example. This is Planters Bank of Tennessee trading or used as a note in Philadelphia. And you can see that the, 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 the discounts ranged as high as 25%, which means this note was only accepted as for 75 cents on the dollar. Right Now, these, these prices are efficient in the Chicago sense. Right? So these prices are moving around because they reflect changes in risk factors. But it's not a very good medium for buying things because you don't know the value of this. So, so the solution here is to design money that doesn't have that property that the prices move around. Right? That, it's, that it's information insensitive, I'm going to call it, which means that Nobody has uh, an incentive to actually poke in around and what the backing is for this money. And everybody understands that it's too expensive to do that. So money, money is special because its price is constant, right? And when you take economics, the first thing you learn is about supply and demand and resources are allocated via the price system and prices move around and you're shifting supply and demand curves in your first semester of economics. That's not how money works. Money has a fixed price. The goal is to have a fixed price. So a $1 bill trades at $1. Now that's, that's, um, that's gonna be hard to achieve. Uh, and when it is achieved, I'm gonna call it uh, no questions asked. The money is accepted, no questions asked. Okay. So private, private money has never been able to achieve this. Okay. So the second problem is that privately produced money is subject to bank runs. And the reason is that if the price doesn't adjust, the only thing that can really adjust is the quantities. Right? So if the price doesn't adjust, nobody has probed into the backing for this, this note. And so if they're worried about it, what they do is they go to the bank and say, I want my cash. Okay, this is what happened in 2007, 2008 in the United States with institutions not liking the private money, which was in the repo market, and asking for their cash. So there's two problems. One is it's hard to design money 
to have a price that's constant. And secondly, there's this problem of bank runs. Now, stable coins are the latest form of privately produced money. They're um, purportedly backed one for one with safe assets, that is treasuries, for example. Uh, so the issuers are basically unregulated banks. Right? So they, they, they can go to the market, sell a stable coin in the market, take the proceeds and go invest it in something, which we're hoping is something that's relatively safe. And, uh, they're, but they're unregulated. Now, stable coins are, uh, they provide liquidity in crypto space, but they also provide collateral. And so a lot of demand for stable coins comes from wanting to use them as collateral uh, to back levered positions in buying, let's say, Bitcoin. Okay. So who cares? Well, the answer is the stable coins have, a, there's a big reason why they're going to grow. And the reason has to do with cross-border trade. So here's uh, John Cunliffe. Uh, Despite technological advances, it can take as long as 10 days to transfer money to different jurisdictions. And that transaction can cost up to 10% of the value of the transaction. A payment from the UK to some countries has to go through four currencies and as many as five banks. This is kind of the extreme case. But the point is that blockchain is exploding on global supply chains. That's the natural place for it, right? So for example, Maersk, the big shipping company, uh, has developed with IBM uh, TradeLens, which they've uh, 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 formed a, a coalition with these other two large international shippers. So um, cross-border trade now involves attaching a non-fungible token, say, to a container. And then when, that, when another shipper takes over the container, accepts it, the, the address of the non-fungible token has changed. So that allows you to track this all in real time. And it's a very short step from that to saying, now I'm going to pay you. You delivered it. I see that you did on the blockchain. So I'm now going to pay you on the blockchain. Right? And this is already being developed by um, a company called Stripe, a fintech company in California. They're developing it for cross-border use for, the, for retail, for remittances. So this, this is where uh, I expect that blockchain is going to go. Um, so is this, is this a serious issue? So it, it's a serious issue already. A one standard deviation increase in the issuance of major stable coins, Tether and USD coin, on a given day results in a 10.7% increase in the commercial paper issuance quantity and a 20 basis point decrease in the commercial paper yield and a 15 basis point decrease in the treasury yield the following day. So even, even though you might think, well, the, the, the amounts of money we're talking about in stablecoins doesn't seem large compared to, say, the whole banking system, it's large enough to have a big impact on money markets. Okay? And uh, as these things grow, uh, they'll, have, they'll be a bigger impact on money markets. And that's not surprising. These are banks, right? So these other crypto firms you know, are sort of out, live out there in crypto space and have no uh, physical location. Stablecoin issuers have to have a physical location because they have to have the real assets somewhere. They have to be stored somewhere. Not in the U.S. necessarily. Tether, the biggest one, is in the Bahamas. Uh, but what they do has an impact on money markets already. Okay. So what's the solution? Well, historically, we know what the solution is. Every single country on Earth decided at some point that the government should have a monopoly over circulating money over circulating money. And why is that? Because only the government can produce non -quest no questions asked money. 
right, that does, is not subject to runs and which trades at a constant price. So circulating money is a public good, and that's what governments supply. They supply public goods. So this, this uh, seems like it's just an old question um, that we've confronted again. Now, in the conversation, uh, this doesn't come up. I mean, I think in the last three months, I've probably given 15 talks or briefings about this, a half of that to the Treasury and the White House and the Comptroller of the Currency and, you know, IMF and so on and so forth. And the issue of, you know, maybe we should have a monopoly uh, hasn't come up. Now, it, in many cases, what happened was the privately produced money was uh, banned, right? Well, you can't do that with stable coins, right? Because they're, they're transnational. So what you can do, though, is have a viable central bank digital currency, which people will prefer over stable coins, right? And that's, that's, what, that's what happened in the past. The government took over, uh, although private money was banned. So private, this, this, uh, the government can produce information insensitive money and private agents can't. Okay. Uh, so that, I think, based on my discussion with regulators uh, and politicians, history is going to have to repeat itself, which means we're going to have to have a big financial crisis in 10 years, and then people will think about this seriously, and then we'll pass some legislation which maybe addresses things. Thank you. <laughs> well, first of all, let me say that, I mean, it's just a privilege and a great Pleasure to be here early this morning with Gary and talk to, and talk about these things, and this is really an issue that has sort of come to the fore in the past few past few years in the sense that most people have never focused on this. Basically, said that well, yeah, I know what money is, and that's the end of it. So what are why are you talking about this in the first place? But given that technology changes, as Gary said, good number of these issues are actually coming coming back, most of it has been dealt with in one form or the other actually in the past because there's very little new when it comes to money. Technology has changed, but money is essentially what we have in our heads. And we've had money in our heads for a long time. And almost everything has been tried in the past in one form, one form uh, or, or the other. It was really enjoyable, given what I do, to read Gary's three background papers for this seminar and, and to sort of go through the list of what has happened in the past and why, why things ended up the way they, uh, they, they did. So it's a tough act to follow uh, when, when Gary has done it all, already. Uh, so, and given that I only have 20 minutes, bear with me, everything I'm saying is going to be sort of kind of telegraphic. Um, um, now let's see. But basically money is what society agrees it should be. That's, that's what it is, because money is a convention. And you need to agree on some kind of a convention, because otherwise you can't exchange goods for money. And that's what we do. But it needs to continue evolving, because technologies, uh, technologies change. And this is sort of what all of you have read about in textbooks in one, one form or, or, or the other. Money is a medium of exchange, it's a unit of account, and it's a store of value. That's what we like, would, would like it to be. We started out with 20 kilo copper coins, physical banknotes, cards, and now maybe an e-krona in, 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 in the future. And talking about this from a central banker's perspective, 
Unitary accounts store of value, that's monetary policy, inflation targeting, and all those things. But this today, what this is really about is the medium of exchange. And then there is one more angle to it, which is really, really important and uh, what really matters. And Gary, in his papers, he calls it the convenience yield. And I call it transactional efficiency. It's one and the same thing, but if you don't have it, then people basically will uh, start using somebody else's money. And that's why it is so, it, it's so important. And that, of course, also includes the no questions asked aspect of, uh, of, all, of all, all of this. Let me add also one more dimension, which is not in, in Gary's papers. Uh, and this is not at all a critique of what's in the papers. It's just the way I've been sort of thinking about it lately. And what, what is it that I have here? I'm talking about wholesale money retail money, which is something that households can hold. And I'm talking about state money in one form or the other, central bank money and private sector money. And then uh, you have the issue, who is the issue, the state or private? And who has access? And this is what really matters. This is, this is serious stuff. Because access matters, because if you don't have access, then you might think that you have a problem. And if it's limited, who actually has, has access? Then, then that also affects the system. That's why you have the distinction between wholesale and, and retail. And uh, this is it. If you look at what we have tried in this country in the old days, you had Rick's Bank. But during one period, actually, the National Debt Office issued its own money, wholesale and retail. And this, this happened from 1789 to 1792, and a number of years after, after that. To have two central banks in one country, that's a bad idea. <laughs> that, that, that's the conclusion that comes out of that, that actually comes out of uh, out of that. And this ended up with all sorts of problems. And there was no parity with Rick's bank notes. So you had immediately a huge devaluation of debt office notes, about 50%. And eventually the whole sort of exercise was uh, was was abandoned. And uh, it maybe not something that that, that sort of matters, uh, matters today, but one really has to be careful. And why is it that I'm raising this issue? Because if for one reason or the other, the political system decides that uh, Rick, the Riksbank should not issue a CBDC, we fairly, with a fairly high likelihood, we will get a national debt office CBDC sooner or later, <laughs> because that's the only way to produce a safe, uh, safe assets. And that's why one should be careful about you know, how you set up these, uh, set up these things. Now, uh, then banknotes, and uh, we had that from 31, 1831 to 1904. They were both retail, uh, and uh, they were state um, Riks Bank banknotes and private sector banknotes. It worked out, but it worked out because there were really, really strict rules on this. So basically, private sector banknotes were backed by uh, a 30-35% reserve ratio in the Riksbank, and then in, in turn the Riksbank held gold. But then, of course, all the senior rich, uh, re, uh, accrued to the banks, and eventually uh, the, the political system did not like that, because if you have a central bank, you've got to make money from something, somewhere. Uh, and then that system was abandoned, so we ended up with the, what we have today if beginning in 1904. And basically now we have had a structure which has been constant, more or less constant since 1904. And people have been uh, happy with that. And now what is at stake 
is to what extent we want to maintain that structure or not. Or, we, or we, if we should just sit with our arms crossed, letting things happen, and then we say, oops, now we have a completely new world, now what? And uh, this, is, uh, this system has, as I said, it has served us well. But, uh, and here you can see wholesale retail, uh, and the public, uh, general public has ac access to this type of money in one, uh, one form or the other. But, what also is important here, and this is where you get into the no questions asked issue. Also, when you're talking about private sector money here, everything is settled in central bank money. Because that's the only way to deal with the no questions asked ask issue so that you actually know what you are doing and, and how you can sort of trans transfer money from uh, one entity to, uh, to, another, uh, to another entity. And now we are at a crossroads. This is where we are. Because using this way of trying to probably and too simplified a way explain where we are, we have the Riks Bank up here. We provide wholesale money to the banking sector. Retail is just on its way out because people don't use physical banknotes anymore. And forget about coins because 20 year olds have never seen a coin. They, they, <laughs> they, they don't use them anymore. Uh, and then we have private banks and with bank deposits and wholesale. Uh, deposits in one form or the other, and then under here, and this is what you touched on earlier, we have, I call them unstable coins <laughs> and, 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 and crypto, cryptocurrencies. And then the issue is really where this is going to, uh, this is going to go and what will, uh, what will uh, happen next. And this is where it gets tricky because most people have never focused on these issues at all. And now we have uh, to ask ourselves again, what is the role of the state supposed to be in this new environment where nothing is on paper and everything is digital in one form or the other? So society again has to agree on what money is in this, uh, in, in this environment. And either that is some kind of an active decision or you just let it happen and then you see what happens. And if history gives us any guidance and that's uh, amply sort of talked about in your papers, so sooner or later, you end up with all sorts of runs and financial crisis in different shapes and forms. You need legislative changes uh, when it comes to fiat money because today most legal frameworks are tend tied to physical paper in one form or the other. So we actually need a legal framework which is not which is technology neutral. I think that that's the key the key to it. And there is an inquiry that working on this. Uh, 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 the government inquiry and they're expected to come up with a report in 2023. We will see what, what, uh, what they will do and what they will uh, say. And this is, uh, this is a non-trivial exercise because mostly tech people talk to tech people, lawyers talk to, talk to lawyers and economists talk to economists. But here these three groups of experts have to come together and define what electronic money is in a legal, in a legal uh, sense. So, what do we do then? Let me then uh, say a few words about what's going on presently when it comes to new, 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 uh, new forms of money and how, how I look at it. In my opinion, and this is my own, my own opinion, so I'm not speaking on behalf of anybody else, I do think that public access to central money should be maintained in one form uh, or the other. I think it would be a bad idea to construct a system such that only banks have access to uh, 
central bank money and no one, uh, no one uh, else. State money needs legal backing in one form or the other. Uh, today, the legal tender status of Riksbank issued money cash today is weak. It's extremely weak. And I think that that's a problem in itself. And I think that legal tender should be technology neutral. And uh, those of you who are actually interested in this, uh, Stefan Lindskog, who used to be head of the Supreme Court in this country, has written 40 pages, but it's actually, actually 150 pages because he has so many footnotes in the paper uh, with, with a font size which is minimal, <laughs> where he actually goes through all the, all the legal aspects of this. And it's a re I really suggest you read that piece. And it's very, very interesting. Then, of course, it's very much legalese and it's very much with reference to uh, Swedish law. And it has not, as far as I know, been translated to, uh, to English. But it's probably one of the better pieces in terms of looking at this from a legal perspective. And uh, I think it should be technology neutral. And then t we also need technology neutral regulation of private money. And it's very simple, same risk, same, same regulation. Otherwise, we basically end up with unregulated banks, and that takes us back to the 1800s. And then some of those banks are likely, uh, likely to collapse sooner or later in, in, one, in, in one form or the other. And many of those unregulated banks are essentially banks or money market funds or something similar to, uh, similar to that. And then, of course, if you take various types of stable coins, if they're if 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 you if they're located in the Bahamas, you better go to the Bahamas and see if if there is anything there. Maybe not, uh, and that's an issue uh, all in it uh, all in itself. So what are we doing today? And this is uh, this is real stuff. This is actually work that is going on. So this is not uh, this is not uh, fiction. In May this year, we started uh, running our RICS instantaneous small value real time gross settlement payment system sending money from one cell phone to another in real time. The remarkable thing about this is that there are no transactions in the system. And that's when we get back to your issue of banks being very oligopolistic or monopolistic. So, so far, they haven't been interested in using the system because it's just so efficient and so cheap. And, and they try to extract as much rent as possible for as long as possible. That, that, that's an, eventually it will happen. Another strategic de decision of ours is to uh, basically stop running uh, using our own or our own large value real-time growth settlement system, and we'll we will use the in the future the ECB system for target two and target two securities uh, because it's much more efficient to, for us to just uh, do a kroner tiny tiny kroner section of their system which is designed to deal with euros all over Europe. And then we have an ongoing migration to new standards. This is highly technical, but eventually the whole world will be on ISO 222 when it comes to how you actually transact, transact and how you define transactions. And we are getting very, very close to running this system 24 seven, uh, 365 days. Uh, a year. There, there aren't really any limit, limits to this any, anymore, at least not on the technical side. And the funny thing was that when we asked the banks, they came back and said, why are you extending the opening hours? <laughs> we don't need that. And that really surprised me because, I mean, what kind of an answer is that? 
<laughs> I mean, there's got to be some sort of competition in the system that somebody sort of realizes that, hey, here's a wonderful opportunity. I can run this 24-7 while these other guys are leaving the office at 3 p.m. or 5 p.m. Uh, so it, it's going to, I think it is going to, uh, to change in, in, one, in one form, one, one form or, the, or, or the other. And that's, uh, that's where we are on that. And then finally on, we have the e-chrona. We have done a ton of analysis. We are actually testing the e-chrona. We are into the second phase. And the next year we'll probably move into a third phase. So the e-chrona actually exists. You can take a look at it in various cell phones. Uh, and, uh, and, and we know how to do it. But then, of course, uh, it's quite, an, quite a project to scale it. So now you, we can run it on a small scale. And, but if you want to do it for the whole country, then it's a completely different thing. And it, we have uh, quite a lot of international cooperation when it comes to this, because, of course, many, many central banks are, are doing, doing one and the same thing. So this is going to come in one way or the other. It's most likely going to come in many emerging markets because they don't write memos for years and years and years. They just do. Uh, so here, uh, those countries that have had reasonably good payment system for a long time probably will be a bit later than some, uh, some uh, others. And then finally, and this is, uh, this is really sort of an add-on to what you talked about, Gary. Uh, we are presently exploring cross-currency settlements in the TIP system, the, the system that, we, that will be used in the future for sending money from one cell phone to another. And the TIP system is owned and run by, by the ECBS system. And technically speaking, I think that within a year or so, we have solved the issue of how to move from Swedish kroner to euros and vice versa in real time 24-7 at an extremely low cost. Because it doesn't, of course, matter what, what kind, if you have one currency or if you have many currencies, because the, the IT stuff that you need is, is exactly, exactly the same. Uh, we are co cooperating uh, with internationally, and there are many uh, projects of a similar type uh, that are dealing with this particular issue. If we are successful in doing this, and if our, if our Nordic Baltic friends want to join, then basically in our part of the world, we have solved the cross-border, cross-currency issue. But to make that happen, because we certainly can do it on the central banking side, then those who are extracting rent from the system presently will have to be willing to play along. Otherwise, somebody else will show up and, and, and sort of run away with the whole thing. And then, and this is also interesting, uh, we sent out a press release, I think it was yesterday or the day before yesterday, on Project Icebreaker. And Project Icebreaker is a project where uh, the Bank of Israel, Norges Bank, the BIS Innovation Hub, uh, which is located here in Stockholm, the Nordic branch of this uh, system, uh, have agreed to develop a hub where you can move uh, CBDCs around cross-border in, uh, in, in this fashion. And I'm convinced that on the technical side, uh, this, this, this issue will be solved within a, within a, within a few uh, years. And there are numerous other projects of a similar nature in the central banking uh, community dealing with uh, dealing with this. But eventually, at the end of the day, it's never going to work if you only have central bankers talking to other central bankers. Eventually, the private sector has got to be involved in this in, in one form or the other. And either these things evolve in such a way that uh, we and the banks 
cooperate on this and it happens that way, or if it doesn't happen that way, then new players will show up and, and then they will sort of do these uh, things in the future in a more efficient uh, way. So that's where we are. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Stefan. That was great. I believe we have someone from <coughs> the BIS hub here. Yes. Gary, do you have any comments on what Stefan said? No, I always learn from when Stefan talks. I was a bit nervous that you might agree on everything. <laughs> no, I, I, kind of, I do agree on everything. <laughs> do we have any questions? Yes, please. So, uh, Bjorn Segendorf, I'm uh, uh, used to be at the Rexbank, now I'm at the uh, BIS uh, Innovation Hub, and the BIS Innovation Hub, it's a um, uh, joint effort by a large number of uh, central banks to work with uh, innovation, simply to keep up with the uh, private sector. And the uh, icebreaker that uh, Stefan was talking about is uh, one of those um, projects where we try to build something that can move central bank digital currency between countries. So that comes to uh, your uh, uh, ending as well, because you've, you've talked about the rationale for stable coins being uh, partly cross-border payments and the kind of new money that has been invented for doing that, and the observation that the public sector moves into where, where the uh, um, private sector is. So we basically see a bit of that by the icebreaker and a lot of other authorities working on uh, uh, cross-border payments. So my question would then be, basically we have two different markets for money. It's the uh, domestic market where uh, we have regulated it, but still almost all money that is out there is you know, um, private money. It's the uh, liabilities of banks. So what would you say make the market for cross-border money different from the uh, domestic market for money that, would, that could make stable coin, coin live for a long time? Thank you. So let me, let me start by saying, I, my statement started out by saying this is the reality of what's going on, right? The reality, and you, you don't read about this in you know, the Financial Times or something. The reality is that cross-border uh, global supply chains are very quickly moving towards blockchain, and many of them already have. I mean, the, the containerization industry is almost all blockchain. So that's, that's because uh, it's more efficient to keep track of goods. But the correspondent banking system is so inefficient that it seems clear that the payment system will follow on these permissioned blockchains very quickly. And that's why I mentioned Stripe. Uh, Stripe has developed, it's essentially a retail system, but you can, you can deposit USD coin and say, I want to move this to Turkey, but I want it to be in the local currency and they'll do the FX transaction for you. So that's not blockchain based, but it's, it's, a, it's a use of uh, a stable coin that we haven't seen. Uh, it's connecting with the real world. And those systems, those systems move, I mean, the private sector is very creative and moves very quickly. And I think, I think that's, that's, you know, it's hard to keep up if you're a central bank. Bjorn, let me ask you, Icebreaker, is that run by BIS or? Uh... Uh, it's a bit of a 
project. So it's a, that is a joint venture between the central banks of uh, Sweden, Norway, and uh, Israel. Okay, yeah, yes, the aforementioned, sorry, yeah, yeah. So uh, I will be uh, working on that. Okay, so it's a working group from, from these central banks. Yeah. Okay, uh, please. Hi, Marcel Morin from here, from Stockholm School of Economics. So I have a question about the implementation of CBDC, and that goes both to Stefan and Gary. You mentioned that we need to uh, maintain access of the public to, uh, to the central bank money. And there are basically two designs that people are talking about. One where um, consumers have direct access to central bank accounts, let's say, and one where it's still a tiered system where you have the banks uh, in the middle. So I was wondering if you had a view on these two systems, and even if you don't have a view, what do you think are the main advantage and cost of this? I think, I think nobody takes the first system seriously. Okay. <laughs> right. That all, we should get rid of the banking system, and have everybody deposits money in the central bank, then what do they do, make loans? I mean, it, it's, it's a crazy idea that was proposed maybe a few years ago, and the proponents got embarrassed and it was dropped. So it's the second system. I mean, you need middlemen in one, in, in one form or the other because you can't really tell ex ante where these things are going to go over, over time. And if you live in the IT world and you think, think about apps in many different ways or electronic wallets or whatever these things are, are called, then it's, uh, it's better actually to look at this in terms of the central bank being in the center of the whole thing and then surrounding the central bank, you have various participants, and then it's up to them to supply various types of wallets or whatever you call it in the, in, in the future. So that's where it's going to end up. That's what I think. Okay, please. That's Shihao uh, Poon from uh, Decentralized Camp, a large uh, blockchain community. Uh, I wonder about the e-corona, about how, how do you think about transparency when it comes to like a lot of cryptocurrencies right now you can see track every transaction and see every transaction you know what goes where how transparent will this e-corona be and how do you think regarding that transparency well it's not a point in itself to to be totally transparent or, or for everybody to have access to everything because that's why we have exactly the no questions to ask 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 issue i mean ultimately of course at the end of the day the central bank has to keep a ledger so that you know what you have issued and what is uh, what, what is out there. but as to the rest there is no need for everybody to know everything everywhere all the time because that's kind of pointless and it's probably also very, very resource intensive to set it up, uh, set it up the, that, that way. Today, it's even possible to design systems such that if you use a digital, whatever you call it, currency or asset of some sort, where it's, it's this possible to design those systems in such a way that, that if you buy something, it's not possible for the buyer to, uh, follow everything and and uh, trace everything and that's exactly the way it works to, with money today because if i pay using physical banknotes uh, and buy a cup of coffee it's totally unrealistic and it doesn't make any sense for uh, those selling coffee to say i would really like when i'm looking at the numbers of this banknote wherever it has been circulated in 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 the world before that uh, before that happens so can be done. I mean, ultimately, it is a 
it is a design uh, design issue and it depends on the purpose and how you choose to design the system and um, given that the views are very very different in different parts of the world and this is a value judgment in terms of whether you should anonymously be able to use money or not it's likely to evolve that's my guess in different ways in different uh, different parts of uh, parts of the world but when you're dealing with central bank money and when you're dealing with private sector bank deposits, forget about total anonymity. Because at the end of the day, then you end up with a conflict between anonymity and anti-money laundering and uh, financing the ter uh, terrorism legislation in one way or the other. So actually already today at the end of the day, there is very little anonymity because of that. But if you want to create something which is super an an anonymous, then technically it's possible, but then they are with a fairly high likelihood fairly soon outside the law. Please. Yes, I'm Niklas Arason, I'm a professor at KTH, Royal Institute of Technology. And now we're talking about future money. We're talking about digitalization, internalization, or even globalization of money. So my question is, what is the future of central banks? Will we still, still have national central banks if we have global private money. Yes. <laughs> because, because this- I, I agree. Yeah. Because this issue has been discussed forever and given that you, we do not have a global parliament and it takes, national parliaments have the monopoly right to issue laws. And that's where actually ultimately the power comes from when it comes to money. And so far, no one has been willing to cede uh, those rights. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> Please. Yes, so I hold back from the Swedish FSA. Uh, a question for you, Stefan, on the matter you raised about the, um, the publishing of access to the e-krona, yeah. or the central bank money. I'd be curious to hear a bit more how you would see the uh, demand for it develop and emerge because obviously pure legal tender status I suppose is not <coughs> because the people will be holding cash to a large degree than they do at least in this country. I, of course I mean in a financial crisis you can see of course the, the, um, the demand running to the state so to speak from the banking system but in, in peacetime so to speak how would you see this demand? It will be fairly low, but it will be there. And also another way of thinking about a CBDC is, is to say the following. A CBDC system is de facto increasing the safety of the whole system because it's kind of an alternative to making payments. And that is probably a good thing because it increases domestic redundancy. And I do think that in this day and age, that's a, that's a, a, nice, feature to, a nice feature to have. But of course, it, it depends on the design. And suppose you don't pay interest on a CBDC. Well, then if banks pay interest on deposits, then it will be fairly, fairly low, but it is a low use. But some people will always prefer to have a claim on the, on the central bank instead of private banks. And then it depends on the setup and how efficient uh, the connection is to the payment system in one form, uh, one form or, uh, or, or the other. And, and here, there, there's a tension here because I, say, I always hear this, this, this argument, you've got to be stupid guys, why are you doing this? Because the private sector will take care of this. But at the same time, I've said, we have provided an extremely efficient low cost payment system, which is not being used. 
And it's my job to ensure that the rents in the system aren't too high. And then it's my job to provide a public good such that there is a kind of a balance in the system as a whole. Yes. Hi, Marcus Söderberg from Studio. Um, can I ask you to reflect on the impact of CBDCs on monetary policy and some potential new tools that you might have at hand? Have strong views on that. I, I don't. I mean, it's going to be denominated in the domestic currency, so it's just like just like cash. I don't see any big change. I think the bigger the bigger change. Just let me mention is that. CBC, the design of CBDCs is, looks like it's going to be bilateral because there's no central body organizing it. So if it's bilateral, that means we won't, in the future we won't use SWIFT. My SWIFT is a messaging system. And, you know, as you have learned about SWIFT from the Russian sanctions, it's, that data is very, very valuable. And so CBDC design, in my view, it also involves important national security considerations because you want to understand how the data sharing is going to work between different CBDCs. And CBDCs are not going to be anonymous. There's different approaches, but large amounts, the identity is going to be known by the central bank. So I think that, that's where there's an issue, not with monetary policy. No, I, I, I agree with that because a very, and maybe this is an oversimplification, is basically to say that the only thing we try to do when we talk about this is not inventing something totally new, roughly maintaining the system that we have today. And that's because technology changes. Keep in mind that the present system came or was constructed in a day and age when everything was on paper. And now we're sort of moving into a world where nothing will be on paper. And then the issue is what kind of a structure do we want then? Yes, please. My question was very similar. Just how fragile is this system? I mean, we love the digital, the, the smoothness of it. But uh, if we have crises, how well can it keep up with the, with the crisis on a global scale or on, on a local scale like in Ukraine? What, how fragile would a system like this be? Which system? Well, uh, the digital system. We have, we have, I mean, like I said, 20-year-olds have hardly seen coins today. Well, we, we I mean, it's the, the words the system is a bit nebulous. I mean, we've seen in crypto winter, uh, which was basically a systemic crisis in crypto space, and we saw the collapse of large lending platforms and large hedge funds. And that had very little impact on the real world because it's all circular, right? A lending platform, they all lend to each other and trade with each other and has nothing to do with real loans or anything. So that world is, you know, I think it's a good thing, it's collapsing. Um, but I, again, I don't see any real difference if with CBDCs. Um, I mean, just think of CBDCs as, as Stefan said, it's basically what you use now, only it's on blockchain. And blockchain, of course, is not invulnerable. Uh, you know, it can be hacked and it has all the usual problems. But let me just add to that, that if you think about this in terms of vulnerabilities, uh, I think it makes sense for any nation to maintain the capability to physically move physical cash around. But to maintain that kind of a system, you can't run it by the central bank itself because you have to have a distribution network. It's like, uh, yeah, in one form, one form or the other, and you have to have the capability to deal with the logistics of that. And that I think that the only way to do that, if you want to maintain that type of a system, it's uh, by law, because it costs money to transfer money. 
and uh, private banks are profit maximizing entities so they, they they will never do it out of their own sort of goodwill so to speak in a couple of hands. Yes, please. Yes, uh, my name is Stefan Erne from Handelsbank. And, um, I want to ask about other players. I mean, the big techs, if you look at Facebook's uh, Libra or DM mm -hmm. experiment, what's your view on that? And do you think that they maybe can play a role going forward in creating some kind of a stable? So DM is a very sad story, I think, because um, the CEO of Diem is was Stuart Levy, who was uh, worked in the U.S. Treasury and was involved in getting access to SWIFT data to, to cut North Korea and Iran out of the international financial system. So Stuart is very aware of anti-money laundering, counter-terrorist, know-your-customer rules. And he, he worked very, very hard to satisfy those rules and was in constant discussions with the Fed and in the end decided that, you know, the, the, Fed, the Fed just basically gave up on him. I don't think they really understood what he was doing. And so Diem, uh, you know, was canceled. And it's unfortunate because Diem had announced that they would stop or, or, the, or the government, or the Fed could take over Diem as a central bank digital currency, which I thought was a very interesting idea. Uh, but, but Diem is, is no more. And I, I, it's very sad because they were, Stewart was somebody who wanted to play the game honestly. And, and he lost. And the other stable coins don't care about any of this, right? And they're outside the US and who cares, right? Now they, they have fig leaves about, you know, we follow know your customer stuff. Like Tether, you know, you have to be pre-vetted in order to withdraw. And, and now there's minimum amounts to withdraw and so on. So, um, you know, it's, it's uh, the good guys lost. But yeah. might somebody try to attempt doing that again? And then I, I, think, I think Is it's a, a I think possibility? It's a, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think, I think, um, you know, I think the conclusion that was drawn is you can't be successful as a stablecoin if you're going to follow the rules. And let me let me add let me add to that. And it struck me because when this sort of showed up, uh, I I tried to read all the documentation on the um, and the I mean this sort of moved around a bit over time. And what was very very striking when I asked for all the documents trying to explain what this is and what they wanted to do. And maybe this is not completely correct, but it's roughly a reasonable ballpark number. They, they wrote probably a couple of hundred pages dealing with the technical specification of DM and all that stuff. Less than 10 pages on the legal aspects of what kind of money they were actually producing. And this is actually quite common because the tech guys they don't care about the legal stuff. But if you don't care about the legal stuff, ultimately at the end of the day, you have nothing. Because then if you end up in court, you just don't know what's gonna, uh, what's gonna happen. So, and that's why I stress this need to understand how you combine the technical specificities with a legal definition that holds of what you actually do or try to achieve. Notice how he looks at me when he stresses this legal stuff. <laughs> I, I want to mention, I did go to law school for six weeks. One, one more thing about Diem, which I think is important, is that Diem uh, was connected to a real bank, Silvergate Bank, which is a state-chartered bank in California. And Silvergate is one of the two banks that's very connected with the crypto world. 
the Silver Bank uh, Exchange Network is very large, and they're upfront, they'll tell you how much volume they have and so on. So it, it's interesting because Silvergate and the other bank is called Signature, sort of shows you a, a glimpse at the future of interoperability between crypto and our existing banking system. And I think that's, that's something, if I was a regular, I'd be a little worried about. But let me add that, I mean, the whole conversation about DM, Facebook, and what was going on there was a very, very important lightning rod in the central banking community. Because before that, I was pretty much alone when it comes to international meetings when I said, hey guys, money is disappearing. Physical cash is disappearing. So we got to start thinking about this and we got to do something about it because otherwise we're sort of out of business. And then it has, it has happened that I was told, yeah, but Stefan, you are the governor of the central bank, so can't you just tell people to use cash? <laughs> and, and that would be the end of it. <laughs> and, and, and no, that's not how it works. But once Facebook, DM, these new sort of phenomena showed up on the scene, the whole field changed almost overnight. Libra, Libra was really interesting. I mean, when Libra was announced, it, 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 the central banking world, you know, had a collective heart attack. And I think, and it's really interesting to think about why. I mean, the, the fear was because Facebook has such a large, you know, clientele, so to speak, if those people all started using Libra, the fear was that somehow that would evolve into kind of a, a, its own fiat currency, which, you know, I can sort of imagine that happening, but you know, since Libra didn't happen and Diem didn't happen, I, I don't see that as happening with the stable coins. But to add to that, what most central banks in the world have realized, and this is serious business, particularly in a small open economy, is that producing something called the Swedish Krona, that's a competitive business. And either you know what you're doing or you'll, you'll be out. And that means that people start using somebody else's money. And when that happens, forget about monetary policy because it will be decided elsewhere. Okay, I've seen three hands, I think, Hampus and Martin. And so in that order, please. Okay, uh, Hampus Rian, I was just wondering, how do central bank investors, they would, they would handle a situation where there's a run to CBDCs? I mean, it's quite impractical to run to cash, fiscal cash in a period of crisis, but it could be practical to run to CBDCs. Depends on how you organize the system, and it depends on how you set it up. And it doesn't really, at the end of the day, change all that much in a world without a CBDC, because then people would run from one bank to another. And the only way to deal with that is to for the central bank to end up being the lender of last resort as one in one form or the other. And if you have a run on the whole system, and if there is no central bank money, then they would go for government debt. In one in one form in one form or the other. So you sort of never really get out of get out of that issue. So the, the underlying issue is you really, how do you balance the system? Or if you have a serious run on the whole thing, like back in 1992, basically the government takes over the banking sector and that's the end of it. I think the bigger, the bigger problem is some of the legislation at least is floating around in the US Congress, which is that stablecoin issuers should be, you know, have a charter and should hold all their backing stuff in cash at the central bank and the central bank would pay interest. That's, that's where you have a systemic stability problem, right? Because then if there's any worry about the other banks, everybody, all, all the wholesale guys are gonna withdraw from the city bank and go to one of these narrow banks. So that's, that, that's just creating systemic fragility. 
Well, Stephanie, if I could ask if, I mean, if there is a run, if people took out their money from the deposit accounts on the private banks and put it in CBDCs, there would be a liquidity crisis of some sort in sure. the private banks. Could the central bank then lend back? I mean, they might be credit, yeah, credit risks in that. That essentially what happens, but that happens already today, because if you have a huge problem, then you end up lending and then you take whatever collateral, good or bad, is around because that's how you, that is how you deal with it. But it's a highly, highly relevant issue, sort of how to think hard about how, how to balance, it, how, how to balance this. Okay, Martin, please. So I'm uh, Martin Flodén from the Riksbank, but uh, and my question was to the Gary. I think you almost already answered it precisely. So, what, what is your view on the bank issued uh, stable coins or tokenized? Deposits, the deposits will really get it regulated, uh, but you sound skeptical. I mean, I, I, the, I've, the proposals in the U.S. Congress that are being floated um, are, are all very scary. I think, and I, I have a very simple point of view. I think it's we've already shown in the history of every country that the central bank should have a monopoly over circulating currency, but that's not even in the conversation which is what makes me very pessimistic about the future. Does that answer your question? Well, sure. Please. Uh, hi, my name is Madeleine Dubois-Rilius. I'm from the Swedish Investment Fund Association. So I don't really have a question, it's more of a comment. I was attending the OECD blockchain forum yesterday, and there they were talking about stable coins. The, the FATF, they stressed that the same risk, same rules approach will not work because the risks amplify differently? Is this something that you are? Well, I mean, eventually you just have to go chase these guys and make it work. So um, that's just the, that's, the, that's how the real world works. I mean, people invent new things and some of it is good, some of it is pretty bad, and some of it is on the dark side. And then you try as best as you can to understand what, what on earth is going, uh, going on. And that process hasn't really, as the way I look at it, uh, uh, changed and then people will have to decide what they transact in and eventually if you belong to the public sector good guys team then you better do it in, in stuff that you can you can explain to others so that you don't end up in court but is it something that that you're stressing to the to the legislators i mean there's quite a diff distance between how the money laundering legislation has evolved and how all these new things have evolved. I mean, presently there isn't really much of a connection, but there is a lot of awareness. And I think that at the, let's say, OECD level, as you mentioned, there's this awareness and this idea that eventually all these systems will need to basically follow the same rules, because if that is not the case, then uh, you end up with a problem. I, I, I mean, I agree with that. You can't, you can't, no, no country can pass a law outlawing stablecoins, right? I mean, although they have to have a physical location, they're essentially transnational. So the only thing you can do is have a viable global system of central bank digital currencies, which will be preferred over stablecoins. Yes, please. Max Eklund, SNC. I was thinking with the situation that we have today with the strong uh, US dollar and this uh, an obvious uh, dollar deficit globally, how would a system like this have an effect on 
the stability and uh, I guess new currencies overall. I guess getting access to to this type of country level, but also on a uh, retail level. I don't think it has anything to do with the strength of the dollar. I think that's based on fundamentals. I mean, it's the Fed's policy has a big negative impact on lots of countries, but I don't. I don't think central bank digital currency. I mean, I think as Stefan stressed, central bank digital currency you should think of as it's like it's cash only in a different form, right? So that's that's not going to um, I think change a lot of these other issues. And we can argue about whether the present system on the wholesale side, cross-border is good or not so good because it's costly and it takes time and all the rest of it. But basically the wholesale part has been digital already for, for decades. Please. I have a question, I'm Thomas from AEMF. I mean, to go to the beginning, we tried to define what money is, but we somehow end up in how, how it should work or functions for money. Do you think money will be defined how we want it to work rather than, I mean, we could define money and have a philosophy of money in it, and then it drives function rather than the other way around. Could you, it's like so, open money. I think they're, no, I think they're related. I mean, I think uh, what I, what I, when I started out, I said money has to have this property of no questions asked. It has to be information insensitive, which means that when I offer you something digital or otherwise, you don't say, wait a minute, I have to do credit analysis on this and we wait a week for that. It's something where I offer it and you say, fine, right? So that's a very particular property, information and sensitivity. It, it's something you have to design. And, and that's what the belief in the, that the design is credible, we usually call confidence, right? So if you know, and I know, and we know that everybody else knows that we're not gonna dig into what's really backing Tether, then we accept Tether, no questions asked. So it's this property of information and sensitivity which makes it makes the other stuff work. It drives the other stuff, right? So if you look at the stablecoin world now, you know the stablecoins, let's say Tether, USD coin, and Binance coin, hold their peg to a dollar about 95% of the time. So they're pretty good. The algorithmic stablecoins, uh, which we saw, you know, Terra blow up, uh, those don't work. Those hold their peg about 50% of the time, but those things are linking two intrinsically useless coins together in an algorithmic way. So they're, they're just not gonna work. Um, so I don't, think, I don't think we have any confusion over that. I, I mean, I probably didn't speak clearly, but, but hopefully that's clear. Andreas Gustafsson from Nasdaq and also a board member of Swedish House of Finance. So thank you very much for, for being here. Uh, and I'm a lawyer and Stefan, I really appreciate you always saying that the rules and the legislation is very important. It's the foundation. So I think that is great. And also that you're referring to um, uh, judges writing things and asking people to actually read it. I mean, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question is, do you think that there is a risk that establishing a CBDC in Sweden will be delayed uh, due to the challenge of getting a legislation in place? And secondly, do you think there is a risk that only establishing something in Sweden will not be enough? You need to have kind of a regional, European, or even kind of a, a global framework in place in order to, to really establish these kind of cross-border structures that 
are now being developed in an unregulated world? Ideally, of course, you would have global coordination, but global coordination is not going to happen given the way the world works now. So in our case, we just took note of the fact that physical cash is about to disappear. And then we ended up being ahead of some others. It was pretty much the same in 1668. So in that sense, there is nothing new under the sun. Things happen and you have to, uh, you have to deal, uh, deal with it. Uh, my hope in a sort of a good scenario is that if we can come up with something that makes sense on the legal side, maybe that's a tiny bit of guidance to others. And they can read what we have produced and they say, well, maybe there's sort of an element of intellectual truth in this and maybe we can use it. The ECB, they are working very substantially and at a fairly rapid pace on the same issues. And if I recall, I think that the ECB has been told by the European Parliament to speed up what they are doing. And if that is what happens on that side, then it's fairly likely that eventually we end up with some kind of a legal framework at the pan-European level. And then regardless of what we do, then we probably would have to uh, adjust to, uh, to that. And that would create more uh, standardization within Europe, and I think that that's a good thing in itself. I mean, they have, I mean, they're pre running experiments in China already with, with their own CBDC for millions and millions of, uh, of, of people, but whether they have a sort of a legal basis for what they do or do not do that would consider it to be in some sense firm outside China, I don't know. So, like all these. Other experiments that Gary showed going back a couple of hundred years, we will go through a process uh, similar, similar to that. But eventually, given that the marginal cost of moving money across the globe, that creates a very, very strong incentive for standardization. Uh, because if the marginal cost of moving money around, then it would be helpful for everybody and a huge gain for society if you can actually understand what you are moving around. Yes, uh, I have a follow-up question about uh, the, the competition you mentioned about different currencies, and especially now you mentioned China. What is your view on the competition between the different CBDCs and the, the driving forces also to create those CBDCs, especially well, looking at China? I mean, all of us are producing a good called money. And it's a competitive business, despite the fact that most people don't think about it in that way. And we do know from a huge number of other cases that, it, let's say, for the sake of the argument, that if you really destroy the, destroy the value of your own money, then will, people will opt for somebody else's money. And that is already the case in, the, in a good number of countries where they have huge economic problems. Take Argentina, take Venezuela, take um, Ecuador. Ecuador, Botswana. And in those countries, either they dollarize or they go for Bitcoin or they go for God knows what, because that's their only choice. I think it's important to keep in mind there's two technologies we're talking about. The central bank digital currencies in China or uh, the sand dollar in the Bahamas and in Brazil and so on, those are not blockchain based, right? So those all go through the central bank servers. And that, that's fine, but then there's this other technology the blockchain technology, and that, that's what these uh, central bank cross-border experiments are, are involved with. You know, how does my blockchain talk to your blockchain? And, and that's where this uh, international coordination 
you know, just hasn't happened. It, it's really sad to watch. I mean, um, and, and I, 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 I somehow, it just doesn't seem like there's any leadership and it's just everybody sort of does their own experiment and writes a paper about it and then we all go back, we all go back to work. I mean, the reason for my getting so excited about this is, is, is it makes me think about how cell phones were introduced. The NMT system was the first cross-border cell phone system in the world. And we pulled it off in this corner of the world. And that means we certainly have both the technology and the capability to do, to do this if we want to do it. And that's why it would be wonderful if we could pull it off between the Nordic and the Baltic countries. Uh, yeah, because we, look at, we, we are enough look-alikes in order to maybe make it possible. Okay, we only have five more minutes, please. <clears throat> there's, a, there's a lot of stablecoin that is pegged to the dollar right now, and some pegged to the euro. I haven't heard anything <coughs> to the Swedish crown, but there's a high chance that when you release the e-krona that someone would peg the Swedish crown and then distribute it to a different like uh, crypto, cryptos like Ethereum, uh, Avalanche, Polkadot. How would you react to that if someone would like create some kind of stable coin that would peg to the Swedish crown? But you can do that already. So the CBDC doesn't really add anything. If you want to peg something to, let's say, national debt office treasury bills, you just go ahead and do it. And uh, so we'll see, we'll see. No, uh, this is just like uh, um, deposits. So it exists as it is. Right. A last question. We only have three or four minutes. Uh, this is a debate we heard about in Sweden and Iceland. What, where is the debate in, in the US, in the Fed, or in the Bank of England? Are everybody more or less parallel in, in discussing and taking a stand on this, or is it very different? The Fed is light years behind. The Fed has not been involved with any cross-border experiment with any other central bank. They have very little understanding of the technical aspects of blockchain. They make statements like uh, private money has coexisted with government money for centuries. You know, they forget that demand deposits are insured, so that's essentially government money. So they, they it's very frustrating. Um, and I can tell you that the national security people are very frustrated with the Fed as well. And I, I don't think the Fed really realizes that that's a problem. And the Fed thinks they're independent but if it's a national security issue, uh, it's not clear that they are independent. So, you know, one of these papers that I wrote with my uh, former student, Jeff Zhang, who is a lawyer, um, you know, was solicited by the Harvard National Security Journal. And it's for precisely for these reasons that they're, they're having a big conference around their paper. It's very flattering. But I look at the, the participant list and I don't recognize any of these people. They're not economists. They're all from other, all other areas that Stefan was mentioning. And uh, so I think, I think there's a growing concern about the, about the Fed in this regard. And the Bank of England? Bank of England is further along and they've conducted cross-border experiments. Okay. But the US dollar is very different currency from, I mean, it's the world currency. But well, that's not true or no? That doesn't matter. <laughs> I also think that what happens here is that you have many more individuals who have studied monetary policy than monetary theory, because most people have never ever studied monetary theory. 
And if you come from the monetary policy side, basically you assume that the system is constant. And if somebody shows up trying to mess up your system, then you tend to say, stop it. And that's a very, very important point. I mean, I, 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 I'm so happy to hear you say that. I mean, before the financial crisis, the resources in central banks were completely misallocated. They had 600 economists who studied you know, inflation and monetary policy, and no one knew what a financial crisis was. Before the financial crisis, you never heard the word systemic risk in a central bank in a developed economy. Now, everything's a systemic risk. And so it's, it's, you know, now they have all these people working on financial stability, but financial crises are a low frequency event. And so, you know, you work in the financial stability division, you have to write a report every quarter. And what are you going to say? You, you can't say, well, there's no systemic risk this week. So, <laughs> so you have to, you start, you start in looking at things. Anything as big is a systemic risk. And then we're kind of lost. Okay, I don't see any more hands. We have run out of time. Let's give uh, Gary and Stefan a big hand for a great. <laughs>